Okay. Oh. This is a this is a big a big passage of scripture um, that we're going to deal with today. So I really appreciate that prayer, Julian. Um, because today we're moving from that first type of psalm that we discussed, right? Which was the psalms of orientation. And we're moving into psalms of disorientation. And this movement in our series reflects the very real life experiences that I suspect are familiar to us, right? When you move from comfort and from self-assurance into periods of turmoil, maybe loneliness maybe hopelessness. Today's psalm could fairly be described as a psalm of darkness and of despair. Now, it's possible in some circles that I might be criticised for even mentioning this psalm, right? Um, or mentioning the aspects that it describes in such vivid detail. Now, the affluent church, by and large, has been pretty suspicious of the language of disorientation preferring instead to focus on the sure and trustworthy nature of God. Um, I know when I went through high school, this was uh, the sermons off that were preached were offering a picture of life that reinforced my right to thrive, uh, my claim to the promises of Scripture, right? My hope to prosper. Now, I think that this language is absolutely necessary and it's beautiful. The relentless, or maybe the restless love, you know, if you've been listening to that song, the relentless, restless love of God is something that we sing about in the midst of sorrow. It's a truth that we hurl in the face of a disoriented world. It is our defiance as people of the kingdom who speak truly about our hope, even in the midst of our hopelessness. But then I, I want to do the but, right? But. I, I want to suggest that this is only part of the picture. There is a very real danger of overlooking those aspects of life that are out of control. There is the possibility of rushing to justify tragedy in the name of future hope. There is the chance that we're going to accept cruelty as character building or cover over despair with words of comfort that are thin and empty. Now, I want to be really careful. I want to be really clear with everyone. Um, I think that all of us have seen hope come out of darkness, right? And I suspect that all of us can name moments of brokenness in our lives that we have seen redeemed and we've seen restored. I don't want to diminish or move away from the beautiful truth that God brings light out of darkness. But I don't want to skip over the darkness to rush to the new orientation. And to do that is to miss, I think, the very real aspects of human life that are disoriented. All right, so uh, we've got the quote up already, thanks Dave. This is um, Walter Brueggemann, and you'll be noticing I'm, I'm kind of using his book as a guide for this series, and this is sort of an endorsement to read it if you're interested. Um, but he suggests, that using a psalm of disorientation is not about faithlessness, faith, uh, sorry, faithlessness or negativity, but it's instead a more radical act. So this is him. He says, the use of these psalms of darkness is an act of bold faith, albeit a transformed faith. It is an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is, and not as in some pretended way. 
On the other hand, it is bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for discourse, that is, for speaking with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. Everything properly belongs to the conversation of the heart. Everything is a proper subject for conversation with God. So I had a few questions that I asked myself through this week. Maybe they're helpful questions for you guys as we go into this psalm. Do we need a psalm like Psalm 88? That's the, that was the first question. Do we need this? And if so, how does it help a community of believers like us? Do we need a language of darkness as well as light? So as we work through Psalm 88 together, you'll see that I do believe, right? I wouldn't have spent all this time working on a sermon if I thought it's pointless. Um, but we do need this kind of speech. But I want to reiterate that this is a hard sum. It is right in the midst of suffering. It is in the center. It doesn't offer any obvious words of hope. It begins and ends in darkness. And so I was hoping to ask at the outset, and this is a question maybe for people who listen to the podcast uh, as well at home, um, that you be listening to the urgings and the promptings of the Spirit as I go through this, you know, that still small voice that Scripture talks about, that might, in the course of this sermon, prompt you to think, yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. I've been there. I have endured that kind of darkness. And then I'm hoping, and this is, a, this is a request, it's not an expectation, it doesn't need to happen, but I would love that at least one of us might offer to uh, consider sharing up here, not today, but in the next few weeks while we go through these psalms, your own journey with maybe despair or darkness or despondency or hopelessness. To put your language and your life and your story around what might otherwise be just abstract theology. So if somebody is interested in doing that uh, and you feel prompted, and this doesn't have to be next week, it could be over the course of the next few weeks, have a chat with me, email me through the week, give me a call. Um, and again, this isn't an expectation, but I would love to talk to, to you after the service. Um, and I would also love for us in that same vein to have an opportunity to speak with one another at the end of the service. And hopefully to speak with some of the, the younger members of our congregation as well. So you might be thinking about how what I talk about today is not just about adult darkness, right? Because I think it's a mistake to believe that kids don't understand darkness as well or don't experience it. I'm speaking as somebody who doesn't have children but is lucky to have a lot of friends who are very frank about what it's like to have kids. I'm going to send around some resources in the e-news next week relating to kids um, and who are going through aspects of darkness or disorientation, because I'm lucky enough to have a sister who's a school psychologist who, I, who I've asked to send over some resources. So that will be coming around next week. So this is our work of wanting to love everyone, um, not just those of us who are old enough to understand, because we live in a disoriented world. Okay, so on to Psalm 88. There was a, a, a writer named Derek Kidner who wrote this one line in his commentary. It was the one line that I found useful, but I found it useful nonetheless, and it's not up here. He says that as we read this psalm, our part should be that of companions in prayer with the person that is praying this same psalm. You know, none of us would choose to be in this space of disorientation 
We know that seasons of life are not the fault of other people. Very often, a person or a community are not responsible for these things. And this is not about blaming one another, but it's about walking together. Psalms of disorientation offer a picture of faith in a God who is present in and participating in and attentive to the darkness, to the weakness and disorientation of life. So as we're companions with this psalmist and as we're companions with one another, we remember that God too is our companion on the dark path. Now I'm going to read and bear with me. I feel like this psalm needs to be read in a kind of a certain way, right? So I'm going to read a translation by uh, a Hebrew scholar and a poet named Robert Alter. Um, and I mentioned this to a to a, someone who teaches Hebrew, and she said it was a great translation, so I felt better about that. Not Renee, somebody else. Um, otherwise, I'm just like always deferring to Renee whenever I get close to Hebrew. Um, but I'm going to read Robert Alter's translation, which I found really striking. So before I do that, and it might be up here now, it's quite small, but I want you to be aware of a few words that I use. So one word is sheol, and then we have the pit, the grave, the depths, perdition, the lands of oblivion. All of these are words that a contemporary listener would understand to mean not just the underworld, but a place of darkness where the dead are cut off from God. Okay? So this is Psalm 88. A song, a psalm for the Korites, for the lead player on the Mahalatha to sing out, a masculine for Haman, the Ezraite. Lord, God of my rescue, by day I cried out, by night in your presence. May my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my song. For I am sated with evils and my life reached the brink of Sheol. I was counted among those who go down to the pit. I became like a man without strength among the dead, cast away like the slain, like those who lie in the grave, whom you no more recall, and they are cut off by your hand. You put me in the nethermost pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath laid hard upon me, and all your breakers you inflicted. You distanced my friends from me, you made me disgusting to them. Imprisoned, I cannot get out. My eyes ache from affliction. I called on you, Lord, every day. I stretched out to you my palms. Will you do wonders for the dead? Will the shades arise and acclaim you? Will your kindness be told in the grave? Your faithfulness in perdition? Will your wonder be known in the darkness? Your bounty in the land of oblivion? As for me, to you, Lord, I shouted. And in the morn, my prayer would greet you. Why, Lord, do you abandon my life? Do you hide your face from me? Lowly am I and near death. From my youth I have borne your terrors. I am fearful. Over me your rage has passed. Your horrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They encircle me completely. You distanced lover and neighbor from me. My friends, other darkness. 
So the psalm, I told you, right? Did I not tell you? Yeah. The psalm opens with an urgent appeal to God. In fact, you'll notice uh, as we go through that the psalm is organized around three statements of urgent petition. Each of them names God and reminds him that the prayer of need has been prayed, offered passionately and repeatedly. I've been praying, I've been calling out. At the beginning here, the psalm is dominated by desperate and intimate speech. I cried out, my prayer, my song. Later, the psalmist talks about calling on God every day, stretching out their hands, even shouting in prayer. When we hear these lines in the psalms, I don't know if this is like you, but I expect when I hear this, I cried out to you. The familiar refrain is, and you heard, or and you answered. In Isaiah 65, 24, there is this beautiful picture of a time when God will answer even before people cry out. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. But it's not yet. Not here in Psalm 88. The psalmist lives in a world where there is no answer. Now, the obvious question here is, of course, why doesn't God respond? But the psalm isn't interested in the reasons of God. It's from the side of Israel, right? It's from the side of the speaker. It's not the hearer. You don't get God's point of view. It's a report from somebody who feels God's absence and who desperately needs him. And notice that God's silence doesn't stop the speaker. So every time that I pause, there's this moment and the speaker just keeps going. The failure of God to respond doesn't lead to atheism. It doesn't lead to rejection. It leads to more intense speech. The psalmist is utterly convinced that God is there and must be addressed even if he never answers. So next thing. So the next six verses are not very subtle, right? This is an angry person. This is somebody who must speak. I said at the beginning of the reading those words, Sheol and Pit, and they, they, they refer to being cut off from God. This isn't about judgment. This isn't about kind of the final punishment. This is about separation from God and from community. And the speaker is audacious in their speech. What do they say? Do they say, somebody put me here or my enemies put me here? No, they say, you put me here. Your wrath is upon me. You distanced me. You made me disgusted. A number of the commentaries that I, I read drew connections to Job at this point, right? Suggesting that this assault of words might be a strategy. And maybe you have done this. Maybe I have done this. Right? We want to force a response from God. We want to provoke him. We want to dare him into answering. But it doesn't work. There's just silence. So the next line is... As I mentioned earlier, this psalm is arranged around three urgent moments of calling out to God. And this is the second. I called on you, Lord, every day. Immediately after this cry, the psalm shifts into a series of rhetorical questions. And you'll notice that all of them are about, can God work when somebody is dead? And the obvious answer to each of the rhetorical questions that the psalmist asks is no. The writer of the psalm 
feels close to death. And surely they will be closer still if God doesn't answer them soon. And what good is God to them then? Um, this, is, this is me doing a, a little bit of a sort of lecture thing, but maybe if you want to go to the next one. I just picked up some of these words. The pattern of the words here is, I think, really stunning. On one side, we might put these words, dead, shades, grave, perdition, darkness, land of oblivion. On the other side, wonders, acclaim, kindness, faithfulness, wonder, and bounty. All of these words are here at odds with one another. For the speaker, the urgency is clear. They say, look at what you can do, right? Look at the right-hand side of the column. Look at what you have done. Look at your life-giving work. The chance to do these things in my life is almost gone, and soon I'm going to be beyond your ability to help. And of course, as Psalm 88 goes, there is no response. And so this is the third and final cry. Notice that the speaker here is shouting. I didn't want to shout just for the sake of some of our younger members. But they're shouting, why do you abandon my life? Why do you hide your face from me? Are these questions familiar to anyone other than myself? I feel like I have asked these questions in my journey before. For the psalmist, they choose to turn to this moment of accusation. And I suspect I have done this as well. You did this to me, God. These are the harshest statements in this psalm and maybe in any psalm. Your rage has passed over me. Your horror destroys me. And it's as if I'm drowning. That's this idea of the breakers. The intensity of the psalmist's despair is, I think, familiar to us who have known despair. Pain can be profoundly lonely. The last word in Hebrew, and the reason that I picked this translation really is that word darkness. It's the last word. Nothing has worked. Nothing has changed. Nothing is resolved. And worst of all, the psalmist is alone. People have shunned them. Friends have left them. They're in despair. The psalmist is cut off from the company of others. And to make matters worse, even God, the one to whom the psalmist has prayed faithfully, whom they have praised faithfully, is unresponsive to this call of help. I was tempted at this point to then just sort of sit down and end it there. Um, And in some ways that would be an appropriate thing to do. So I don't think this is about giving a, a sort of, but in the end it all works out, right? What is a psalm like this doing in our Bible? The question that I asked at the top is, do we need this? Do we need language of darkness? What good is it in our community? So I'm just going to offer a few thoughts and then give us an opportunity to talk with one another. So for those of us who have known darkness, and I feel like I don't need to ask for a show of hands here, I suspect that listening to the psalm sounds pretty honest to what life can be like, right? Psalms speak of all of life, not just the good parts. Here, I think more than anything else, the life of faith faces life as it is, as it actually is. I think that we need an honest language in our communities that isn't silent about our doubts, 
and our fears and our hopelessness. We know that there aren't always obvious and simple ways for people in our community out of the depths. I know that too often my impulse is to look for the simple resolution, right? No matter what the situation is. Faith is like the great answer book. The answer is there. But faith, and I want to say this carefully, faith does not always resolve life. Psalm 88 shows how a faithful person in the midst of disorientation doesn't retreat to their past before the trouble began. They don't charge ahead to some imagined solution which is out of their sight. They wait in the mire, in the depths, and they call out. And I think, and I was talking to Renee about this, I think it's that thing that I want to hold on to. It's this cry. If you remember, the psalm offers three of these cries, and they kind of get louder and louder. It's not a mute psalm. There is still speech. Even at the bottom of the pit, the psalmist cries out. I was just thinking while I was reading this, you know, Christ in the garden, right? Who cries out to God, give me another way. Or Christ crucified, who cries out to God, why have you left me? This psalm gives us language to express our despair to God and to one another. To speak about life as it sometimes is. Now, I know that in our world, unanswered prayer is still a deep challenge to our faith. I know that in the end, we say that we'll pray with Christ, not my will, but yours be done. But now, just as when Jesus prayed that, we encounter God's unresponsiveness in the face of sometimes our deepest needs in the most intimate and unbearable moments of our lives. And it's beyond personal, isn't it? It's not just our personal crisis. We look at our world and we see violence and we see famine and war and economic crises and displacement and environmental destruction and so on and on. Darkness is still visible even though death has been overcome. The silence of God in Psalm 88 is not met with demands for an explanation. But it's met instead with a combination of patient waiting and impatient demand. It's patient waiting and impatient demand. In darkness, we are most aware, as the psalmist was, of our need for God. But we are left, just as the psalmist was, waiting and praying more intensely, but mostly without resolution. It is an act of faith in those kinds of situations to keep on praying. And I think that this is the gift of Psalm 88 to us at H3O. It is a language for those times that God seems most absent. It is a reminder to us to keep speaking. I have a quote here from Wendell Berry, who says that the distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. There is a world of difference between the person who, believing there is no use, says so to himself or to no one, and the person who says it out loud to someone else. A person who marks his or her trail into despair still remembers hope, and thus has hope, if only a little. 
So my, I guess my ask of us as a community tonight is that we be honest about our darkness. That we avoid that impulse to resolve the unresolved. That we wait together in the darkness, but that we are also impatient that that darkness be lifted. And most importantly, that we are never silent about our darkness or the darkness of the world around us. This is the bold and defiant hope of Psalm 88. Amen.